Hello and welcome to a special edition podcast episode of Sensational Shigig live from Yancey Street. On this special episode, we are going to be discussing Inferno. That is Marvel's Inferno, um, and that includes both the 1988 series and the modern series and a little bit of the 2015 Secret Wars series. Um, thank you for tuning in, whether you are a new listener or a regular to Yancey Street. Uh, you can find me online if you are new here. My Instagram is Anna with the comics because hello, my name is Anna and I, I have a lot of comics. Um, <laughs> I also have a Twitter account. It is Savage She Geek. I tried to do sensational, but it's too many letters. I really only post, you know, regular Twitter stuff there aside from updates about the podcast. If you're looking for updates, that is where I'm going to be posting them. My website, if you're at all inclined, is www.sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. On that site, which was really founded for uh, a, a comic book blog that this podcast replaced, you can actually find about a year and a half or two years or so of writing that I did covering comics and comics culture before I started the podcast. Pretty much everything that I used to write about has been transferred over to being spoken about on the podcast for a lot of reasons. It's less time consuming and, and all kinds of things, but um, you can still go back there and find the archived blog posts about many, many pull lists and pick lists and uh, reviews of series and all kinds of fun stuff. You can also find, and that will be, uh, one of these will be linked in the Inferno prep uh, posts that I'm going to be putting up there. We'll get to that in a second, but uh, I also have the uh, favorite female character reading lists, which I'm working, I'm slowly working my way through reading every appearance of these favorite characters of mine. I have two that are completely completed from front to back, and that is Clea, who is mostly of the Doctor Strange mythos, and Madeline Pryor, aka the Goblin Queen, um, who I am extremely familiar with and is a major favorite of mine, um, which is why really I am doing this podcast. I am extremely familiar, just so happens, with the uh, 1988 Inferno event because of my love of Madeline Pryor. So um, I was really excited when I saw that Jonathan Hickman, who I am a really big comics fan of, um, when he was redoing or reusing Inferno as an event, oh my gosh, all over it. Um, but you can find <laughs> you can find the Madeline Pryor reading list as well as a few others there uh, that include complete full summaries of what is up with the characters whenever they appear in issues. Um, I also have, and I finally updated this. They are updated to today to uh, the last episode, which I think was thirty five A. It is up there on the on the blog. My pod notes, which are all of the notes that I take for the episode. If you miss an episode and want to go back and just scan what I generally talked about, that is there for you to access. Um, it is also, of course, there for anyone who is hearing impaired and would like to keep up with the podcast as well. Um, the last thing you can find on my website are links to everywhere that you can listen to the podcast, which is most places. And that also includes YouTube. Um, I am just under, as you may have guessed, Sensational She Geek on YouTube. All of the podcasts are put up in video format from straight from the um, uh, service provider, whatever the Podbean um, hosting service. I think that's what they are. 
Um, I those those go directly onto YouTube, um, and they're all in the same playlist, so they are easy to find. Also on YouTube, I have action figure review videos because I'm a dork. Um, and so you can find a number of those things. Uh, the last one that I did was the SH Figure Arts Beerus, uh, which was really exciting. I got to compare the high-end one to the less expensive one. Um, but the most recent thing that I just put up yesterday, and I'm very excited about, is the Hasbro Marvel Legends HasLab Sentinel. My husband and I ordered that last year because it was the 2020 HasLab, uh, and that finally arrived this past weekend. So I did a nice little unboxing video of that guy, um, and I am very happy and I love my son, the Sentinel. I also have a podcast Patreon if you are interested in supporting the podcast or donating. Um, it's You can find it on Patreon under Sensational She Geek. Um, the whole idea behind that being I'm never going to be charging for anybody to listen to the podcast. Um, minimal ads in the future. There's absolutely none right now. And none on my website or anything like that. Um, so the whole idea behind the Patreon is... If you feel like setting it up as a monthly donation, it would be, you know, what the, if you feel like this podcast is worth the price of a comic book, uh, you know, the price of a movie ticket, whatever it is that you feel is appropriate, um, go ahead and do that. If you have the means and, uh, you know, the av availability, I would absolutely love that. And any money that goes into that goes directly towards me not having to work my day job um, and being able to spend more time putting in work on the podcast. If a more subscription thing is not what you're looking for, um, there is a single donation service called Kofi. That is K-O-F-I. I have no idea if it's coffee or Kofi. Honestly, couldn't tell you. I am on there under SheGeek, um, and that is where basically the whole idea behind them is uh, you can go there to find your various creatives and donate a one-time $5, $3, whatever you feel you want to do uh, donation to help them get a cup of coffee and continue doing their work. That's the whole idea behind it there. But of course, as always, the absolute best way to support the podcast is to share it um, and show it to people who you think will also enjoy it. Um, use your networks, send it around, like and comment and subscribe and interact with it so it gets more hits and more views and we can get this community to grow even more. Now, I did very briefly mention that I do have a blog post that is going to be coinciding with this podcast special. Now, that is something that's going to be referenced many, many times. In my last podcast episode, I mentioned I had one that was coming with 18 different pictures um, to follow along with me telling the story of Inferno and explaining everything that's going to be connected from the old Inferno to the new Inferno and everything that I have to know about the new Inferno and Moira and House of Powers. You get the whole point. Um, I have pictures for all of this. Um, so it's not 18. It is, I'm just doing math in my head, 21, 20. 26, I believe it's 26 now, um, that, that kind of almost, yeah, um, I got a little excited, so I, I'm super pumped for this, but you can, um, you can find that on my blog if you go to www.sensationalshegeek.weebly.com if you would like to follow along with the pictures, um, you can just go up to archive, which is at the top right, 
um, and that will bring you to all of my blog posts and it will be the most recent one. It'll be titled Inferno 2021 Prep Podcast, The Picture Section. What you will find on there, the first thing in purple, it is a link. It says Maddie's Reading Summaries. That is where I have, as I mentioned before, I have linked Madeline Pryor, The Goblin Queen's entire reading, his, uh, co- comic book reading history. Um, I have summarized all of her appearances. It takes less than two hours to read. I did it myself in less than an hour and a half when I was refreshing it to prep for this podcast. Um, so if you want to learn about literally her entire character all in one fell swoop, that is there for you to access. Um... There's also a few things that I have in there that are like specific lines that she says and whatnot that might um, help you get a better idea of who she is as a character because she will be coming back at the end of this year. You can bet money on that. Um, After the reading summary link, we have three slideshows. The first one is going to be going over the other iterations of Inferno 1988 and very briefly the 2015. The second slideshow is going over Dawn of X, Moira, Destiny, and Mystique. The third slideshow is about clones on Krakoa, and then there is a single image after that called Image 4 that is by, uh, let's see, Patricio Oliver, who created this graphic about the Quiet Council of Krakoa and other leadership on the island. It has one or two things that are slightly outdated on it, but for the most part, it is a... um, an accurate look at the political side of Krakoa, I guess is the best way to put that. And I will be referencing all of these images each time that I come uh, come across a time that I will be referencing them. I will be um, telling you which image to look for. So if I say image 1.4, that is slideshow one, image four. If I say image 3.2, that is slideshow three, image two. That being said, I'm not going to be jumping around like that. It's I put the pictures in order. I put the slideshows in order of how I'm going to be going through stuff on the podcast. So you're going to just go basically from one to the end pretty easily to follow along. As for what I am specifically going to be covering, um, as I've mentioned, we will be starting off with the original 1988 Inferno event, uh, kind of a brief overview of of the different sides of that, and then we're going to be covering more in depth than the Inferno event, because she's the best, the character of Madeline Pryor. I'm going to go through her history really quickly, just because I want people to have context for her. Context is so important. Um, and that will, will, will wrap up the Madeline Pryor section by, by discussing my personal headcanon of who she is, as well as my personal ideas of how they can appropriately handle her in the Marvel Comics universe. After that, we have a section that I'm calling the links to the original Inferno, and that's going to be covering um, a lot of different lines that Madeline speaks in the original Inferno event that can definitely be kind of transferred over to certain characters saying in this event and have the same um, motives for the most part, as well as we have some marketing stuff. It was some I kind of geeked out about the marketing throwbacks that they did for this modern Inferno, referencing the original Inferno event marketing. That was pretty cool. I'll be going over those similarities and references as well. 
We're going to briefly talk about the 2015 Secret Wars Inferno, which was, I think, just a five-issue series. Um, I I did not reread it before doing this, so I just very briefly going to go over what I remember of it, because it is not canon. It was a battle world situation. Uh, And then we're going to go over modern Inferno preparation, which is going to cover the very, very basic stuff that you need to know from House and Powers of X, and... Tying into that really, really tightly is the importance of Moira McTaggart, who is right now Moira X or Moira 10. I don't know actually which way it is with Hickman. Um, That is going to be a really cool talk where we're going to cover all of the different lives that Moira has lived, her mutant powers, um, and where she stands in the uh, political ruling of Krakoa. Then we're going to be covering, which ties tightly into that, Destiny and Mystique, their relationship, and how they are going to end up being extremely important characters in this Inferno event. Uh, Then we have the question of clones on Krakoa, because they're... (laughs) has been a lot of talk about it, and it was very recently um, brought to what I see as a crescendo, and will most certainly be something that is brought up in in Inferno um, and directly after, because because of various characters who are going to come up, and because of the decision that was made recently by the Five. And finally, we will be discussing all of the other potential players in the modern Inferno event. Um, Specifically, we're going to be covering, we're going to be talking about who the characters on the marketing for this event are um, and what they will have, what secrets and things that are going to possibly be revealed about them, what kind of secrets they might have and how they are going to be affecting the event. Miniseries. I don't know. Are we calling this an event, a miniseries or a mini event? I'm not sure. Uh, And then we will be going over the Quiet Council members very briefly uh, before we just kind of wrap things up. Um, So that's the plan. That is how we're going to get things going here. I do have to mention first, I have to give some precast content warnings um, just so everybody's aware what's going to be happening here. Um, Number one, uh, a warning for Scott Summers fans punches will not be pulled. Um, This is going to be brutal for Scott, but it's the honest to God truth about how things played out. Uh, Two, we're going to have a warning for mentions of violence against women, as well as mentions of violent accidents, extreme trauma, and suicide. And then finally, we are having a warning here for themes of mental turmoil, emotional losses, betrayals, demonic possession, and absentee fathers and cheating husbands. So if any of those things are going to grind your gears too much for comfort, maybe move on to another episode of this podcast or another podcast. So let's go ahead and kick it off with the original Inferno event. Uh, i just like to start by saying that there is a lot. The original Inferno event, while I'm having trouble figuring out if this modern one is an event, if it's a mini-series, if it's a mini-event, um, the original Inferno event was a full-blown event. Actually, if you pull up the f- image 1.1, you can go ahead and check that out now. There is actually... Um, an image there of Sim is the first one. Um, and at the bottom of the image, it has all of the 
the issues that this event goes across, X-Men, New Mutants, and X-Factor. Um, fun fact, these X-Factor issues were the first X-Factor issues I ever read as a comic reader. <laughs> um, so you can check that out. You can also see the designs for the characters who, how they kind of ended up at the end of the event or towards the end of the event. You can see that the Goblin Queen is there with the demon Sim and Sim has Ileana who is partially dark childed out it looks like on a leash a chain leash there is a good amount of hmm oddity <laughs> in the way that they portray young teenage Ileana um, when she kind of starts turning into her demonic form a little bit. Um, and that is, and actually image 1.2 is actually a really good example of that too. Uh, I was going to bring that up in a second, but you might as well check that out now. Cause that's, that's, uh, and that's Bela not Belasco. That's, um, I actually am not sure how to pronounce his name. Nasthir. That's it's N apostrophe A S T H I R. In my head, when I say it, I just kind of go, N -n 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 -n. I, I don't even try to say anything in my head. So I guess Nasthir is what I'm going to be going with um, for, for saying it out loud here. But that's Nasthir, the green dragon looking demon who has um, gripped Ileana by her, her neck from behind. This is also probably not going to be a good episode for innocent ears. We got a goblin queen here and we've got dark child and she's basically naked and just a red being. So, um, how did they ever try and say that these comics were for kids? <laughs> anyway, the original Inferno event, as I was saying, what covers a lot of ground. So I'm going to be covering the main plot here as best as I can. Um, it was written. I have a big long list here. Of, of names of everybody who put their hands in this all mainly Louis Simonson, Chris Claremont, Steve Englehart, Jerry Conway, but also David Michelini, Michelini. Yeah. Anna Nocenti, Walt Simonson, John Bogdavone, Bogdavone, Bogdan, Bogdanov, Terry Austin and Juliana Jones. Um, so now you can go ahead and check out that image again of 1.1 uh, of, of Sim and Madeline. The whole plot, very, very general, general overall plot, um, extremely loose, is the demons Sim and Nasthir want to invade New York, and so they set their sights on Ileana and Madeline prior to do so, Ileana Rasputin. So here I'll, I'll kind of briefly touch on what these two characters have to do with the event and what happens with them. So Madeline Pryor is made into the Goblin Queen and her priorities are changed to match. She takes over New York using the spawn of Hell and Limbo, goblins and demons. You have to remember though, in reality, and I'll go over this when I cover her character summary in a little bit, she is being used. She was created by the demon Sim, or rather the Goblin Queen was created by the demon Sim for the use of big honcho demon Nasthir, who wants to take over the world, I guess. And he and, well, he and Sim end up fighting for supremacy. Um, and that just kind of blows their whole plan when the job is almost done. So that doesn't go very well for either of them. Also, uh, Nasthir was the one to give Nathan Summers, aka Cable, the techno-organic virus. Uh, just a little fun fact there. 
Now, Ileana Rasputin, her role in the Inferno event from 1988. Ileana is a limbo heavy hitter and can create portals between Earth and limbo. So when the new mutants are trapped on purpose by Nesthir in Limbo, she is tricked by Nesthir to into using her demon power to return to Earth and then forcing her into accepting more and more of her demon power during the fight of Inferno until she goes too far and she can't turn back. And now you can look image 1.2, that's kind of a demonstration of uh, one of the issues of New Mutants in Inferno and the the interesting situation that Ileana found herself in. Uh, however, well, actually, yeah, okay, so this, this all ultimately happens when the new mutants are fighting the demons and goblins in New York City during the final Inferno battle, as I mentioned. Uh, also, as I mentioned, she is a very powerful figure in Limbo, but Nestir has been working against her, and the harder she fights, the more she turns into her own demon form, Dark Child. Uh, but that doesn't really end up helping too much and she dies in the end um yeah she dies in the end of inferno I, i'm sure there's a lot of people who don't know that iliana dies in inferno <laughs> uh dark child technically dies in inferno because when the other mutants the new mutants go to take her pick up her body they find inside her eldritch armor is not her it is seven-year-old iliana the age she was before she went to limbo um, and then developed her power. So she gets kind of a fresh start. However, after Inferno, they do send Ileana back to Russia to be with her parents again. But then she gets really sick with the mutant legacy virus and eventually dies in, I believe, Uncanny X-Men 301. So Inferno is really the kickoff of all of that for her. In a brief overview of Ileana, if you're not familiar with her character, she is Colossus's younger sister who was stolen away to Limbo for what was a matter of not even moments as a seven-year-old child and aged, I believe, six years in the time that she was gone in those moments. What happened in that time? Well, she was in Limbo. For a time, she was a ward of a demon, Belasco, who was the lord of Limbo, until... Um, it's kind of complicated. There was another realities X-Men had wound up in limbo at one point. So the storm is still there. And so that other reality storm ends up taking in Ileana in limbo. Cause she has this like oasis in limbo and she helps her a lot there. Um, and that's at various points in the story. Uh, the story, if you want to find it, is called uh, magic storm and Ileana. It's really fun. It's, it's a classic, um, yeah, it's a classic story of the era. Uh, so Ileana in Limbo, as a kid still, she witnesses the brutal deaths of all of the other X-Men who were in that reality whose storm was in, this other reality storm, uh, including her brother. And then she winds up spending several years kind of more or less on her own before at last mastering her powers and returning to Earth. Recently, uh, these days, she is the rightful leader of Limbo, which I gotta say is pretty dang cool. There is another plot line um, through the Spider-Man side of things that tells the fall of Hobgoblin, aka Ned Leeds, but I am honestly not familiar with that part of the comics of that era, and it this is not at all relevant to what we're going over, so we're just going to skip past that. One thing that I really want to stress about the original Inferno event, because I fully expect Jonathan Hickman to provide at least as much of it. 
biblical themes. Um, there was one issue on Kenny X-Men 233 where Madeline Pryor is first developing her Goblin Queen powers and is first tricked into becoming the Goblin Queen. Prior to that, she is dreaming and she has this insane, like almost philosophical dream where she is approached, she and Scott are approached by the the blank formless body of Jean who slowly absorbs the features of Madeline until Madeline is the one who is the blank formless body. And then Jean goes off with Scott, like a weird, weird psychological stuff like that. Um, the, some of, one of the lines from that issue 233 was, um, it just really struck me as like, wow, they're, they're really trying to go deep with this. She would scream, but she has no mouth, a nothing being in a nowhere place, abandoned and alone. Like, like real dramatic. Um, but some of the biblical themes that we come across in this, there's there's a good number of them here. We have what makes a person a hero or a villain? What makes a person real and individual and what gives them a soul? The great battle between good and evil, of course. The sacrifice of the son by the mother, in this case, for her ultimate goal. Uh, a person is denying or accepting Satan. The manipulation of the natural order through external means, etc., etc. There is... Comics in general tend to have a, a bit of biblical themes to them, but Inferno, <laughs> the title alone is a biblical reference. I mean, come on. <laughs> um, if not biblical, then at least philosophical. Um, so I, I, I get really excited about talking about this, if you can't tell. Get super sweaty about it. Um, it's just, of all, <laughs> I just cannot get over the fact that of all the events that Jonathan Hickman uh, is choosing to kind of revamp and bring into the spotlight again loosely. Oh, I'm so glad it was Inferno. <laughs> I would also argue, though, that Inferno is probably one of the only events of that period worth reading. There's a handful of them, and Inferno was one of them. This is all my opinion, though. Please don't hate me because I said that old, not all, co all not old comics are good. <laughs> Some stuff sucks. <laughs> Um, actually, there is a line in this, just if I can harp on that for a second, there's a line in this that if I ever meet Chris Claremont, no, I won't, because that'd be a terrible thing to do. Um, but there's a line Chris Claremont writes in one of these issues that it's, um, it's what's her name? Dazzler singing on stage, Tina Turner song. And Claremont writes, she sings it in a way that would put Tina Turner herself to shame. And that's just something that I always bring up as an example of how um, writing has evolved, so be more conscientious. No, you don't have to have Dazzler putting this icon of a black woman to shame. She could be, it could be, that would impress Tina Turner herself, that would knock Tina Turner's socks off. Like, you could have worded that, worded that so many other ways. And that's not necessarily anything against Chris Claremont. That was how they wrote in the era, and just the fact that we've moved on from that, um, and, and all... We, we have evolved to be better, and I love that. <laughs> so let's talk Madeline Pryor next. Uh, going over her character history, we'll start with what actually happened. Um, how she actually came into existence, instead of going with the whole big reveal at the end. We'll just tell you how she came in, and then go over the story. So, what happened? The whole thing about Madeline is that she is a clone of Jean. She looks just like Jean. When she first showed up, that was not how things were going to be necessarily. Um, she was kind of going to go replace Jean. 
things change. Editorial had stuff to say. They had to make her go evil. But um, what actually happened, what ended up being the explanation for Madeline Pryor coming into existence and being herself was uh, when Jean sacrificed herself in the Phoenix event, her body was put... I honestly don't remember some somewhere else. Um, and part of her spirit via the Phoenix force went to earth looking for her. And there it did not find her, but it found what it thought was her, which was the clone sinister made of her years ago, Madeline Pryor. Uh, while sinister over the years had been unable to solve the last step of turning the clone shell into a powered mutant that would be Gene, the Phoenix Force finished that off for him. So you gotta remember here, Sinister has been enamored with the genes of Jean Grey and Scott Summers for probably as long as he's been aware of their existence. Uh, when he gets the opportunity to replace, yeah, quote-unquote replace, Gene um, and, and warp the relationship there into creating offspring of those genes... Uh, it's like Sinister's wet dream. He is all about that kind of er experimentation. He is all over that. So Sinister gave Madeline, uh, once she was fully formed, via, thank you, the Phoenix Force, uh, she, he gave her memories of her own, which included a whole family and a personal history. He made her an airline pilot working under Scott's grandfather. That was their little meet-cute, so when Scott goes to Alaska to meet his family, he meets Madeline as well. There's also uh, plenty, plenty of evidence. It's basically factual that Scott, I mean, it is factual. Um, not There's nothing basically about it. It is factual that Scott was motivated by all the wrong reasons in his courtship with Madeline. He was motivated solely by the fact that she looked like Jean and he missed Jean and he wanted Jean. Not that he was attracted to her, Madeline, as her own person long before he ever knew that there was any kind of connection between them. It was just based on appearance solely. And that's where a lot of the trouble starts. Plus, when he does meet um, Madeline for the first time and start dating her, he was already seeing a woman called Lee at this point too. So sorry, Lee, you're just another woman Scott screws over in his long history of screwing over women. So Scott and Madeline get together, of course, regardless of Maddie's untrue feelings about Scott's motives. I have to stop here to mention when they spell Maddie for Madeline, um, for some reason in the comics, it's M-A-D-D-I-E. I thought it would have been M-A-D-D-Y, the way they spell Madeline with a Y. Just my, just my thoughts on it. I don't know. Um, so Madeline, she, Maddie, uh, she's still unsure about his motives, uh, but they end up getting together and eventually even get married in Uncanny X-Men number 175, and they have a son together. Now this is where shit gets wild. This son, Madeline has him at home, completely alone, and then drives, cuts the umbilical cord and drives herself to the hospital after giving birth on the floor to get checked out, still alone, and then drives home. So that when the X-Men arrive, she's already home and cleaned up and it's been done for hours now. And this all happens in Uncanny X-Men number 201. And at this point in their marriage, to add on to it, Scott had spent a full two weeks avoiding his wife and she had no idea if he had made it back from his last mission safely. He finally arrives when the other X-Men do but he is the least interested person in the room, even though that's his son and his wife that they are all here to celebrate. We even get Rachel's, um, 
Rachel Summers, is that what they called her back then? Uh, she was, she becomes the new Phoenix, right? And Scott gets offended, even though it's a whole thing that happens during, during the Madeline's issues. But even, um, even she, who secretly knows that this is uh, her half brother, because, you know, she's Scott and Jean's kid from a different reality, you know, okay. Um, so she knows that and she's like connecting with the kid and, and then there's Scott literally in the corner facing the opposite direction as anybody else, just staring out the window, just sighing. <laughs> Hasn't said hi to his wife or baby yet. Like, <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad. And Storm, he, Storm even has to step in to fight Scott for leadership of the X-Men because he tries to use him leading the X-Men and the X-Men needing him and they can't do it without me. He literally tries to use that as an excuse as for why he needs to be an absentee father and an absentee husband. And what's even better, he loses to a completely unpowered storm. Now, later on in history, there, are, you know, we've, we've, we learned that Madeline may or may not have been um, unconsciously helping with her um, latent mutant powers, but that is not here or there and definitely not confirmed. Either way, he loses to Storm, uh, and so Madeline is able to have her husband, so she thinks, and they move to Alaska with the baby. Uh, but it is not long before Jean returns, and even less long before Scott just ups and abandons his wife and newborn again to go join X-Factor in X-Factor number one. I believe it is 18 issues before he even wonders about if his wife and child, before that thought even crosses his mind, if he should go check on them. And I believe it is 30 issues until he um, finally searches for them when we get into Inferno. So good stuff there, Scott. Good job. Great fatherhood. Great, great husbandness. I love it. Meanwhile, uh, with Jean returned, Sinister, who, remember, created Madeline, uh, he realizes that he has got to clean up his mess because as soon as Madeline and Jean meet, Jean is going to know who the hell she is. So he sends his marauders to go kill Madeline and remove all the evidence that she ever even existed. They fail miserably in their mission. They do all of it except for the killing her part. So Maddie wakes up um, alone in a hospital with her son just gone and all evidence of her life and that she ever existed also gone. That, you know, not terrifying at all. So with Scott, with, with Scott gone doing his X-Factor stuff secretly, the X-Men, who I have to mention are in the Outback era right now, decide to take Madeline in because not everybody's a piece of shit, apparently. Uh, and she becomes the, for quite a long time, the human voice of reason on the X-Men team. And she even picks up their tech and becomes their, like, computer gal for a good long while. In this period of time, the X-Men are in Australia, and it's the Outback, like I said, and there's a few big deal moments, like they sacrifice themselves to save the world and then are brought back to life by this goddess or something, um, and Madeline is there with them through it all by their side. Um, but unfortunately, at last, she does have to learn about Scott having fled to return to Jean, and the lie of his love for her is finally seen very clearly, leaving her mental state wide open for anybody to mess with and she falls unconscious. So while she is unconscious, we start getting the troubles happen. The demon Sim is comes to her in her dreams and shows her 
the various aspects of herself uh, as images on his long, hard fingernails, showing her um, this is all, you know, why don't you live out one of your, one of your dreams here while you're here, you know, uh, try, try the sensual one, try the evil one, try the motherly one, you know, whatever. Uh, and what he says to try and get her to do what he wants is why not, why not get your revenge on Scott? And she figures, you know, this is a dream. And he even confirms to her that, oh yeah, totally. This is not permanent. It's a dream for sure. Uh, she still, she thinks, why not? And chooses the most vengeful side of the personality that he has there laid out in front of her. Um, and so he takes that sim, he takes that fingernail and shoves it into her chest, effectively cementing her identity as the Goblin Queen. And here you can look at image 1.3 if you would like to see um, a modern iteration of what her goblin queen design is that is what her uh, goblin queen design has always looked like also 1.1 if you really want to go there and see it uh, in the 80s version but that is by jay anacleto for a uh, i believe it was hellions number two or three um where she returned briefly during dawn of x jay anacleto is just oh look how beautiful this is it is stunning um, so check that picture out, get a good look at it. Uh, and this is also where his whole thing with the nails, this is where I get my idea that Maddie's villainhood can be completely reversed if someone were to remove that vengeful aspect of herself that he shoved into her chest and she would return to normal, which I'll talk about a little more in a little bit. So now Maddie is an unforgiving goddess and she uses her growing powers to warp the X-Men team members, causing them to fight against the X-Factor members who you remember are the original X-Men team members. We get some really cool costumes from this series um, where the Outback outfits are essentially roughed up to match the Goblin Queen just a little bit. Um, we get the truth of Maddie's creation when she confronts Sinister then and goes searching for her son, which he has her son because, of course, he's not going to give up the child of, of Jean Grey, effectively Jean Grey and Scott Summers. That's been his, you know, life goal. So... Um, she goes searching for her son and confronts Sinister. Um, so Sinister explains how he created her and he essentially tries to chain her down, but her power levels respond by exploding, breaking her free, and she goes off to fulfill her mighty plan of destruction, son in hand. When Inferno really starts to kick off, Madeline, uh, still pretending to be, you know, innocent little Madeline, she takes her chance with Alex Summers, the brother of Scott Summers, who has been growing closer to her since joining, since her joining the X-Men. He even, um, stopped her from committing suicide, although unbeknownst to him, that was what was happening, um, back when she first was abandoned by Scott. So clearly they've developed very close feelings for one another, uh, but she had waited until now to make her move as the confident Goblin Queen. So this makes it so that when she comes out as evil later on, he can't betray her. It's impossible, regardless of her plans to kill Nathan and even him in the end as well. It's just another way for her to hurt Scott, although her feelings for Alex were real as Madeline. Uh, and let's be real, Scott deserves this. 
He married a woman for her resemblance to his lost love, impregnated her, and abandoned her, and left her on her own to deliver the baby by herself. Even after meeting his son, he has zero desire to be around them, and full-on immediately abandons his wife and newborn to rejoin his lost love when she makes an appearance. So he's, he's not exactly the hero of this story. <laughs> Uh, in the end, Maddie fights the X-Men and X-Factor teams on the Empire State Building with all kinds of demons and goblins. She desires to sacrifice her son, baby Nathan, to hurt Scott, but she's also being used by Nastir to open a portal for him uh, when she kills Nathan that will release all this power and let all these demons through. Um, so when all these plans basically just shatter and fall apart, um, she ends up releasing a boatload of power and killing herself in an attempt to take Jean out with her. After this happens, her memories are absorbed by Jean as she takes back the final part of the Phoenix Force from Madeline and after they take out Sinister, for whatever reason, she is basically considered Nathan's mother at that point. So my personal headcanon of who Madeline Pryor is um, she does not have to be a villain in the slightest bit. She does not have to not be the Goblin Queen to be a character we can keep around. Um, there are some interesting things in recent years that came out. Uh, Chris Claremont has stated that during this era, um, had, he was not happily with, ha happy with how the handling of Madeline Pryor ended up being. The original plan, according to him, was that Jean Grey was really dead. She was gone for good. Madeline was going to be, ultimately, the character who fills in that gap. But when editorial decided that they wanted to bring Jean back to do the original X-Men team again under the flag of X-Factor, the writers had to come up with some way to write Madeline off, and that became, well, I guess we'll just make her the villain of Inferno. So with that in mind, it is not, it is certainly not any kind of personal, personal preference when I look at her entire character history and say that she is a fascinating creation who undoubtedly deserves better, and that debt can still be paid. There is plenty of room for that. And all of that being said, Madeline Pryor is, of course, her indeed her own person. She is driven by an entirely separate past, even without the fake history that Sinister gave her. So as for my ideas of how they can handle her in um, this whole era, if they were to bring her back and keep her back, um, one being, as I mentioned before, remove the nail of her evil side that Sim implanted in her. I feel like any psychic would be able to do that very, very simply. Um, and if they decide not to do that, then give her her own place to exist on her own with someone to worship and to worship her in return completely unwaveringly. And she can do that as the Goblin Queen or as Madeline Pryor or as the balance of both, which will be kind of my preference, honestly, because that's all part of her story, too. Jean Grey was able to overcome the evil power of the Phoenix, so, you know, they called it or whatever, um, and she was all good with that. Why can't Madeline overcome the power of her vengeful personality and learn to live with it, I guess? Um, the only other idea I had with her, which you can't even do now because um, Nathan is young Cable is back, uh, 
in whatever time period he went to was I was going to say she could sacrifice herself for her son being young cable who just had that cable series. Um, but he's gone now. So that's not a thing that's going to happen. But I, I also, I kind of, I kind of touched on this, but I don't get why they just ignore the fact that Jean is not Nathan's mother. Maddie is, even with this new series he had for a while as Nathan Cable, Young Cable, I don't recall them mentioning that at all. He just calls Gene mom. So, um, I don't know. <laughs> now let's talk links with the original Inferno to this modern Inferno. Um, some of the lines that Madeline speaks while she tears down or plans to tear down the various parts of the mutants' world um, Sim speaks to her, as I kind of mentioned before. He says, wouldn't you rather shape your own destiny than play the perpetual victim? Um, he calls her the Goblin Queen, and she says that she is paying back all the misery that they have caused in an inferno. Nastir asks who she is, and she says, my own woman. Um, she says that she will destroy the hopes of Sinister and Scott in one swoop in an inferno and all of those points I feel like can be very gently reworded for Mystique to use herself as the villain so do we are assuming of this remake there's also some modern well some yeah some modern ads that corresponded with ads from the original 80s event that was really really cool it's a pretty easy to follow format of three characters uh, on a black background with some text talking about how there's a big surprise coming from them. So for the original ads, and here is where you'll want to pull up uh, images 1.4, 1 1.5, and 1.6. So for image 1.4, the ad says, Jean Grey, Scott Summers, and Madeline Pryor. You only think you know the whole story, which of course references how um, at the point where Inferno was starting, Madeline Pryor was not anything but Madeline Pryor, who happens to look like Jean Grey. And by the end of Inferno, as she has killed herself, she was became the Goblin Queen, and it was outed that she was a clone created by Sinister. So that is the whole story that you learn. Uh, image 1.5, it says, Ileana, magic, dark child. No one promised a happy ending. Again, I went over this one where Ileana um, goes into her dark child form while fighting in New York against the demons with her new mutants team and ends up dying, becoming a child of herself, and then years down the line, uh, dies <laughs> for real. <laughs> of the mutant legacy virus, no less, which was given to her by her own brother, not Colossus, the other one. Uh, and then the third one, which you can see is image 1.6, says, Sim, Sinister, Nastier. Sometimes good planning takes a whole lifetime. And this was, of course, because Sinister originally heard of Jean when she was still a child, and he had intended on stealing her and raising her by himself, but Professor X got there first. So Sinister created a clone of her from DNA he managed to get, uh, but the clone seemed completely powerless and useless until Jean, quote, dies, and that piece of the Phoenix Force finds Madeline's clone body, making her Madeline. So Sinister puts her out into the world, makes sure she and Scott gets together. All the evidence of the plan to be destroyed uh, when Jean returns so that he gets away with it. 
or would have rather. Uh, and then the three images of the marketing that relate to this from the modern Inferno are the next three images on slideshow one. You can see uh, image 1.7 says, Xavier, Emma Frost, Magneto, our leaders can't be trusted. 1.8 says, Colossus, Psylocke, Bishop, our allies can't be trusted. And image 1.9 says, Mystique, Moyer McTaggart, Destiny, our enemies can't be trusted. And we will be going over all of those uh, characters and how they are related as we go on into the modern part of the Infernal plot. But really quickly first, if you skip forward to image 1.10, which is the last image of slideshow one, you will see a cover of the Inferno 2015 series, uh, which has Madeline Pryor and has uh, Ileana on it. And you see there's the fallen bodies of Domino and Colossus and Nightcrawler. Um, that's, yeah, so it's issue number one of the 2015 Inferno. This was part of Battle World during Secret Wars, where um, there's basically just a mega world that is puzzle pieced together of different worlds, different Earths across the multiverse. Um, and this one was one where uh, Madeline won Inferno and Ileana did turn to the dark side and go for full on dark child. Um, and so Colossus there, they are, they run New York now. That's like their spot. Um, and so Colossus like on an annual basis or whatever, tries to break in there and save her. It never works out. And I think in the end of this series, he, I think she kills him. I'm not sure, but, um, there's also Madeline like did, I assume it was regular Nightcrawler at one point, but she used her magic to warp and twist him into a goblin dragon creature. Like, it is so twisted and messed up, um, but it's awesome, and I love Madeline Pryor. So now let's talk modern Inferno prep, specifically the House and Powers of X rundown and the importance of Moira X. The basic plot for House and Powers while it played out in the most incredible and high drama way, was fairly simple. It's Moira McTaggart, it turns out, a longtime companion to the mutants at various levels and various times, is herself a mutant. Her power is resurrection, in a sense. Um, instead of dying and coming back, when Moira dies, she starts over, as in, reality does not go on without her, it picks back up with her birth. To add to it, she remembers it all every time from day one. It's like reincarnation crossed with Groundhog Day, but that's where it starts. That's where she starts. Uh, the other three important characters to, uh, to Krakoa coming into existence are Charles Xavier, Magneto, and N. Sabanur, who is, of course, Apocalypse. Moira knew after all of her many lives that she had that the way for mutants to achieve glory uh, was to get the three of them on the same page working together. Historically, as we've seen over decades in the comics, that is not possible in the slightest. Remember this whole thing that of Charles and Magneto being a professional twosome? Very new, extremely new. Teamwork was not their strong suit until very recently 
thanks to Moira. So in House and Powers of X, we see Moira going through a number of lives, trying things a number of ways, but it always ends with the destruction of mutant kind. Her goal, you have to remember, is the survival of her species. So we get to see a reality where she approaches Charles first, and it goes wrong. Then she tries Magneto, and it fails. In another life, she teams up with Apocalypse from the start, becoming one of his horsemen and bringing the end of everything. There's even a lifetime where she and Logan are the last remaining mutants on planet Earth, a million years in the future, when humanity has become a twisted mix of flesh and technology in pursuit for domination. We're going to talk now about the uncanny life of Moira X, which is the issue House of X number two, and you can check that out issue 2.2. I don't know if I mentioned issue 2.1 was just a basic image of Moira and the cast of characters we're about to be discussing. So 2.2, you can see um, we have, um, I'm, I hope when this is all uploaded that you can see the image in full size because it is wild. This was a set of a few, actually, I think this was three or four of Jonathan Hickman's white pages um, where he just has basically text and graphics explaining what we are kind of learning through the issue. So uh, in The Uncanny Life of Moira X, we go through the 10 lives of Moira McTaggart that she has lived in an attempt to, um, in an attempt to get mutants to survive to be in a good place. So we're going to go over all of those lives now. Okay. Moira 1 was the original Moira. Moira Kinross, who later married and became Moira Cohen. She lives an unassuming life as a teacher with a husband and three children. She dies peacefully at the age of 74 from natural causes. Moira 2. After her death, Moira suddenly finds herself back in her mother's womb with all of the memories of her previous life, she is a mutant with the ability of resurrection. Uh, she conceals her nature as best as she can, but she is nevertheless considered a prodigy and decides to become an academic in biology and psychology at Oxford to understand what she is. After 20 years of research, she spots her former classmate, Charles Xavier, revealing himself as a mutant on television. Realizing this is an opportunity, she takes flight to America that proves fatal after it crashes into the ocean. Now we're on Moira 3. In this life, Moira decides to focus on anthropology and genetics and seeks out Xavier while she's at Oxford. However, Xavier's arrogance and Moira's distaste for her own nature leads her to devote her life to creating a cure for mutation. She succeeds only for her lab to be destroyed and her colleagues to be killed by Mystique, Pyro, and Destiny. Destiny's precognitive powers allow her to realize that Moira is actually a mutant invisible by standard mutant detection methods. She warns Moira that if she ever decides to act against mutants again, Destiny will kill her before her X-gene activates at the age of 13, which would kill her permanently. She also tells Moira that she cannot resurrect indefinitely and that she will have only 10 lives, possibly 11, if she makes the right choice in the end. Destiny then orders Pyro- I keep- my, my my old speech impediment, my R's were W's when I was a kid. That keeps coming back when I try to talk too much. Destiny then orders Pyro to burn Moira alive slowly so that she will never forget this encounter. If you would like to see that encounter, uh, you can skip ahead just a touch to images 2.2 through 2.8 that goes over those pages. 
Now we're on to the life of Moira 4. Moira decides to throw herself headfirst into the cause, after ending like that, I can definitely understand why, of mutant human coexistence and once again pursues Xavier at Oxford with the two becoming lovers. They go through what is implied to be the pre-House of X history of the X-Men before finally being killed in by the Sentinels in a days of future past-like future. Moira 5, having been radicalized by the experience, Moira decides to meet Xavier even earlier and convince him to create an isolated haven for mutants. Nevertheless, the Sentinels eventually kill and attack or attack and kill Moira. Uh, Moira 6 is not revealed yet. Moira 7, it says Moira foregoes science entirely and instead becomes an assassin, dedicating her life to exterminating the entire Trask family to prevent the creation of Sentinels, but they arise as an inevitable consequence of technological development and humanity's fear of mutants. They once again exterminate mutant kind. Moira 8, further radicalized, Moira decides to ally with Magneto instead of Xavier. They are both defeated by the combination forces of the Avengers and the X-Men, and Moira dies during a failed prison escape. Moira 9 is even further radicalized, and she decides to ally with Apocalypse and go to war with mutant kind, as I had previously mentioned. And finally, Moira X, or Moira 10, whichever way it is, facing her life or rather her last life, and looking back at all of her experiences, Moira decides that in this lifetime, or this timeline, she and Xavier will, quote, break all the rules. She meets Xavier in Oxford and tells him to read her mind, showing him straight up all that she has done and experienced. So, where does all of this make us end up in Dawn of X? Or rather, where all of this makes us end up is Dawn of X. I said that in completely the wrong way. Uh, it ends us up with Moira X, or Moira 10. Xavier and Magneto set Moira up with a no-space underground on Krakoa, safe even from psychics. They eventually inform her about the Krakoan Council and tell her that in order to convince Mystique to join, they made a promise that they'd have to resurrect Destiny. This is where we get the one rule on Krakoa the Quiet Council doesn't even know about. No precogs. And here, if you go to image 2.3, you can see them discussing this. Moira is a opposed to precogs, precognitives, since they will end up revealing the ultimate fate of mutants and jeopardizing her project, or at least that's what she tells them. Xavier and Magneto are renewing their commitment to fight for mutant kind together, and we're off to the races. Now, as we've discussed, there is one rule on Krakoa which the average mutant is not privy to. Well, really, all but three mutants are not privy to. No precogs, no one who can see the future. Moira's mutant ability to live through entire lifetimes before being born again has given her information that is vital in shaping Krakoa's future, but the existence of mutants and the ability to tell the future threaten her designs for mutant kind. What the mutants would discover if they had a precog look at Moira. They discover that un- they would discover that unknown to the X-Men, Charles Xavier and Magneto have been conspiring with Moira McTaggart, who is not dead. Moira is a secret mutant, one whose power of reincarnation has given her a unique insight on the fate of the mutant race. I feel like I'm repeating myself. She has a bad history of precognitive mutants like Destiny, and Xavier has been ordered not to resurrect any precogs for fear that they would see through Moira's mysterious plans. 
Xavier is deliberately avoiding revealing this role to the X-Men or anyone else, lest they question him and Magneto too closely. So basically, when this comes out, it's going to be a big betrayal. Not look like one, because it is, and not maybe, because this is certainly coming. There's even one lifetime, as we had discussed, about the uh, Moira working against mutants, trying to save them basically from the inside of one of their greatest enemies, but uh, winding up just deciding that the best way to do that would be to wipe them out and by curing them. Uh, so in this timeline, as I had said earlier, she faces destiny uh, here and is she's called out by betraying her own kind, regardless of the knowledge she's collected over her many lives. Um, so what Destiny tells her pretty much outright is, um, if you act against your own kind again, I will see it. I will find you and I will end you. If you try to end me, I see it coming and I will prevent it. Destiny tells her, we are now eternally aware of one another. Your choice is clear. Change or die. Help your people or I will destroy you in every life you live. She then directs Pyro to burn her to death slowly. She'll, she'll remember how it feels. Once again, that is House of X number two, images 2.2 through 2.8. So they're, um, you know, just just a bit of bad blood there. Teens a bit. Tiny bit. To add to it, uh, Mystique has her knowledge that the mutants don't. Knowledge. She has knowledge that the mutants don't. It is a message from her wife from long ago. Uh, I, I have it here, then I will just read it out to you. It is from X-Men number six. You can read along images 2.9 through 2.11. Years from now, long after I'm gone, long after I've broken, left a broken you and this broken world behind, something is going to happen that will sound too good to be true to your cynical ears. There will be an island, not the first, but the last. This place will seem to be hope for our kind. They will invite you in, lift you up, and then deny you the one thing that you want. Oh, they will promise it to you, but they'll do everything they can not to honor their word because they're afraid. They want us blind for some reason. But you and I, my dear, we were born to see. And when those days come, remember these words. Bring me back. And if they cannot, if they will not, then burn that place to the ground. Gah, bitches get shit done! Um... <coughs> <laughs> uh, so I I, uh, I don't think Destiny was being selfish here. I don't think she was just trying to bring herself back and to have an eternity with her wife. She was 100% warning Mystique. She is warning her that there will be something sinister <laughs> I don't know, going on and that is why she has to tear it down because they are hiding something, something that cannot be good for mutant kind. Moira is clearly terrified of Destiny returning, but you have to ask yourself why? Why would she be terrified of Destiny if she has those good intentions that Destiny told her to have? Either she's still bitter, or her long-term plans for mutant kind does not end where we think it does. So let's tally that up, what, what the, uh, the prophecy Destiny made there. Not the first island, too good to be true, lifted her up, Seat at the Quiet Council. They made promises and they have backed out. Every box is checked. Shit's gonna hit the fan. 
Next up, we're going to talk about the question of clones on Krakoa. So Madeline Pryor was one of the first, if not the first, name to be brought up into question after the mutant resurrection protocols were enacted. What about clones? And for here, you'll want to see Hellions issue one through, I believe, four is what I'm talking about. Um, how we've kind of had it put forth before from the men in charge, yes, I'm saying the men in charge, was that clones like Maddie were not real people of their own and therefore can't exist in the same timeline as their quote real counterpart and for this you can look to images 3.1 and 3.2 for some uh i believe from hellions number four a few images a few panels from them uh however they did fudge the wording of this rule to allow access to resurrection for clones like laura kinney and her sister gabby who are clones of the original wolverine logan this solution that they came up with never really answered the questions and only really led to concern from those who the rules might actually affect recently in vita ayala and rod reese's absolutely stunning and fantastically written new mutant series, Gabby Kinney, known as Scout, was murdered. Odds are she was killed by Wolfsbane, who was under the control of Shadow King, but that's not the point. Her friends are the ones to discover her body, and remembering Scout's concerns over the possibility of her resurrection, they decide to sneak into the resurrection chambers and try to do it all themselves. They are caught, of course, and it is not long before the Five hears their concerns and silences them all. Of course, we'll bring Gabby back, and they do. But this leads to a very important moment. The Five writing a formal letter to the Silent Council- <laughs> I wrote Silent- The Quiet Council of Krakoa, letting them know that all mutant clones are viable for resurrection. You can see this on images 3.3 and 3.4 for more details. This is not a request that the Five puts in. This is a statement, which makes sense, as the Five are the ones who do that work, so they make the final decisions. Do I think this letter will be taken kindly or will initiate uninhibited resurrection of any clone? No, to both points. I also believe that we're going to see some kind of outcome of both points in Inferno. Um, but specifically, in that letter, the five do mention Madeline Pryor by name, as well as Kid Apocalypse. So she's on their mind, and now it is only a matter of time before she is back one way or another. Specifically, in case you're wondering and you're not accessing those image, images, what the what the five says to the Quiet Council to basically prove their point is that Cerebro actually categorizes each of those clones as their own individual person. That does not it does not recognize them as the same being as somebody else. That's not how it, it sees each entity as its own person and so that's how they go with what cerebro says because cerebro is like the mutant eye basically um and that that's all stuff that makes sense right um so you can, again images 3.3 and 3.4 if you want that explained kind of better <laughs> finally now i am going to discuss the other players of this modern inferno event and for this you can check out it's not a slideshow, it's just image four at the bottom of the uh, Inferno podcast prep or prep podcast um, 
page, blog post. Uh, the one thing, it's a couple of things that are somewhat off on that and I will cover them when we get there. Um, but first we'll go over the characters who I have not already discussed who were on those marketing ads who are being specifically called out. So first we have Emma um, and the, and then we're going to go through what, what the reveal could be for these characters. So for Emma, she is the white queen of the Hellfire Club and a former villain all of which has been explored in the recent Marauders issues. Um, so my best guess is that it's going to have something to do with that. Potentially her brother, who I think died again recently. I honestly don't remember. Uh, and then we have Quanin, who they list as Psylocke, but I don't know why, because she has repeatedly said her name is Quanin, not Psylocke. But whatever. Um, Quanin made a deal with Mr. Sinister to get her secret daughter back which was all explored in hellions and i'm mostly a little bit fuzzy with it but that's what i see her betrayal or secret being for colossus it is most certainly going to be his ties to russia as have been explored in x-force for bishop um he came from a parallel future which may or may not be known by many people um he has been appearing in marauders same as emma um, but I'm not really sure aside from just, uh, he's the red bishop now. So he works under Kate Pride, um, who is the red queen. So possibly something to, something to do with that position as well. So the other Quiet Council members, um, Inferno number one does show the cover with Moira standing along their bodies or among their fallen bodies, excuse me. Um... So we'll go over those characters since they're apparently, I mean, they're important. We know they're important. Um, the council is split into four different tables, each representing a season as well of a, as well as a sect of Krakoan mutant society. So for the autumn table, we have, or rather had Apocalypse, who has now gone off to Arako with his, I think that's what it was. It was it Arako or was it where, whatever it was, uh, with his wife. And then we still have Professor X and Magneto and they were representing the three greatest traditional and historical heads of mutant society. Makes sense. The spring table, uh, was the black King who is Sebastian Shaw, the white King who is em the white King, the white queen who is Emma Frost. And initially they weren't sure who the red King was going to be. And Kate pride was, uh, ended up being the one who was chosen by the, by Emma to be the red queen. Um, and the three of them represent Krakoa's economic interests through the Hellfire Trading Company. The summer table had previously included Marvel Girl, who is no longer on the council, uh, but also Storm and Nightcrawler, and they represent the more empathetic, level-headed, and just members of mutant kind. And the winter table has Exodus, Mr. Sinister, and Mystique, who of course represent the more radical, morally ambiguous sides of mutant society. Uh, then you also have Cypher and Kurokoa itself, who represent the interests and needs of the island itself, of course. And this, the, um, the council has their three basic laws that they decided to put out for their fledgling nation. And that is, one, make more mutants. Two, murder no human. And three, respect the sacred land of Kurokoa. That is what I have for you today. That is the entirety of my Inferno prep. Um, I hope any questions that you had get answered. What do I think is going to happen in Inferno? 
honestly, I think we're going to find out that Moira is not fighting for the success of mutants. I think that she is fighting for something else, potentially in league with one of the other villains who we already are aware of in this modern era. Um, I, that's, that's my, my main thing as it comes down to it. It's, I definitely think that, um, no matter what Xavier and Magneto think, no matter what the Quiet Council thinks, no matter what anybody thinks, Moira is not up to any good. Um, there is no reason for her to be so insistent that there are no precogs, no future tellers, no one who can tell that I'm here, period. Yes, you are an important character in that if you die, we have to start this all over again. There are ways around that. There are ways to shoot you off into space so no one will ever find you. You know, stuff like that. Um, although, honestly, in the Marvel Universe, that's probably the worst thing you could do. Um, so that's, that's... I'm convinced that Moira McTaggart is not out for the benefit of mutants. I think she is still trying to balance the scales by wiping out mutants and making them human again. Um... As for any of the other characters who are going to get pulled in, I mostly see Magneto, Xavier, and Destiny, uh, or Mystique and Destiny, you know, later on. Um, I can't say if Destiny's going to get brought back. I would really, really, really like that. Um, because let the wives be together, please. <laughs> um, but I don't know if that's going to happen. Um... Inferno number one does come out tomorrow, Wednesday, the 29th of September. Um, I will read you here the quick solicitation. The culmination of Jonathan Hickman's X-Men begins. Uh, it actually has the line, There will be an island, not the first, but the last. Promises were made and broken. The rulers of Krakoa have been playing a dangerous game with a dangerous woman, and they are about to see how badly that can burn them. Mastermind powerhouse writer Jonathan Hickman brings his plans to a head, joined with incredible line of artists and blah blah blah. As one woman follows through her on her promise to burn the nation of Krakoa to the ground. That is obviously a mystique that we're talking about. Uh, but the dangerous game they're playing with a dangerous woman, I feel like that is Moira. Um, I don't know. That's just my initial reaction. Also, since Moira is standing among the fallen bodies of the Quiet Council, that's just the feeling I'm getting. As far as variant cover artists, um, the main cover, I believe, is by Jerome Pena, and we have variants by Greg Capullo, R.B. Silva, Art Germ, Mark Brooks, Jeff DeCal, David Nakayama, Carmen Carnero, Peach Momoko, um... I think that's all of them. Shannon Mare. Did I mention her? Oh, him, apparently. Sorry, dude. <laughs> um, R.B. Silva. Oh, my. Oh, that's sick. I'm seeing this for the first time as I'm going over this. There's an R.B. Silva homage variant that has the three ads. Dude, literally, I'm going to add this to the, the podcast thing as I'm talking about this. Open image and new tab. Um, because I have the image that it's homaging in my files. Oh my God, where even is anything? That's really cool. So the, um, the RB Silva homage cover is homaging one of the ads from the 88 Inferno event. That is sick. I'm going to have to call my comic shop tomorrow and ask if they got that one. Cause that is awesome. 
Um, but anyway, those are the covers that you have. There are four issues of Inferno and it wraps up in December. So this is what the end of 2021 is looking like for mutants. Hell if I know what's going to happen in 2022 when Jonathan Hickman has backed away for until whatever comes next with him, um, which I don't know if he's going to be coming back. The one thing that kind of keeps me hoping that he will come back or keeps me reasonably within the hopes that he will come back is that um, the other day I saw Vita Ayala post a screenshot of a Zoom conference that all of the ex-creators were having, and that included Hickman, and there is no way that they're still planning Inferno. That shit's got to be ready to go to printer by now. <laughs> um, so hopefully they're planning something that comes after Inferno that Hickman is sticking around for or coming back for, um, because I greatly, greatly enjoy what he has done with the X-Men. And um, I I will be super bummed out if he doesn't have his fingers in it at all anymore. He's been leading them in a direction that has been nothing less than refreshing um, as somebody who has been trying to find an X-Men niche to get into. And finally, I find something that's good, that I like, uh, and that I feel like is clear and straightforward, even though I'm sure a lot of people feel the opposite there, but um, super looking forward to Inferno. I hope this podcast helps with explaining some of the history to you. I would love to hear your theories and your thoughts on these characters and uh, the history of these events. So let me know what you think. Um, thank you again for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I will have another podcast episode. It will be coming regularly scheduled this Friday, October 1st. Um, and that will be covering tomorrow's What If episode, Thursday's Titans episode, and all the comics that will be coming out this week uh, for my comic book pick list. So uh, until Friday, or until whenever you tune back in next, have a good week. Don't be an asshole um, and get sweaty about comics.